0: Well, let's face it, we've all come across New Testament texts that reference circumcision, and sometimes these texts talk about circumcision at great length, and often we just hurry past them, um, either somewhat horrified at the prominence of such a strange thing, or with complete confusion about why this subject features so prominently in the Christian Bible. Um, Others of you might be so accustomed with seeing this word showing up in your Bible reading that you just don't think about it at all. Um, It just doesn't even register as you read it. Well, as strange as it might be for us to dedicate a whole sermon to this topic, because it's so prominent in the Bible, we just have to think about it. And last week as I was preaching Romans 2, I just realized This topic is going to show up over and over again in Romans, so we need to tackle it head on and figure out what the biblical authors mean when they talk about circumcision. Now, for some of you, especially maybe younger ones of you, you might feel like this is really awkward. Well, growing up, there was a phrase we would all say, and it was, it's only awkward if you make it awkward. So instead of making it awkward, we're just going to make it theological and try to understand it in that way. So what I want to do this morning is to begin by drawing your attention to two scenes in which male circumcision features prominently in the Old Testament. Second, I want to explain what circumcision came to mean, at least for some Jews, during New Testament times. Third, I want to explain how the church relates to circumcision in light of Christ— Fourth, I want to consider the concept of heart circumcision. And then finally, I want to talk about how circumcision relates to the Christian life. As you can probably tell, this sermon is going to be a little bit different than our previous couple of sermons in Romans. So this might feel a little bit more like a Bible lesson or a lecture instead of a sermon, but it will provide groundwork for future sermons. So in the future, I can just say, hey, remember how we had this sermon on circumcision? Think about that. But then also, I hope it will be really fruitful for you as you engage in reading the Bible. I hope you'll be able to read more knowledgeably as you go through the Old and New Testaments. Let's begin by looking at circumcision in the Old Testament. Um, I want to draw your attention to two scenes in which male circumcision is depicted as a kind of pruning or self-renunciation that's a prerequisite to fruitfulness for God and fellowship with God. Okay, so circumcision is going to teach us something about the kind of self denial that's required for us to be fruitful for God and to enter into fellowship with God. So the first scene is in Genesis 17 with a guy named Abraham. Hopefully, you're all familiar with this guy. But God made specific promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. God promised that Abraham would have many, many descendants, and his descendants would form a nation that would not only be blessed by God, but bring God's blessing to the entire world. Abraham was already older than anyone in this room at this time, so these promises were simply remarkable. And then in chapter 16, the promises are even more remarkable because the text points out that Abraham and Sarah could not have children. They had never had children and it seemed unlikely that they ever would have children despite the fact that God promised that they would have many, many, many children. So the fact of Sarah's infertility in particular put God's promises in jeopardy, at least from Abraham's perspective. So in this dire situation, Abraham faltered in his faith and had a sexual relationship with one of his servants because he thought he could produce children in that relationship. He thought the offspring from his relationship with Hagar might end up being the fulfillment of God's promises. Well, they did have a son named Ishmael, but God interacted with Abraham and said that Ishmael would not be the one through whom the promise would come. God rejected that subversive means of fulfilling the promise. So you might expect in God's rejection of that son as the fulfillment of the promise that God would immediately, miraculously give Sarah a son. That would be the next phase in the story if we were writing it. Instead, God breaks into the story a greater call to faith because God required Abraham As a sign of the covenantal promise of a future son, God required that Abraham would circumcise himself and everyone in his household in every future offspring. Um, Considering the stage of medical advancement in Abraham's day, especially in terms of sterilization, and the fact that this circumcision would have taken place with rudimentary flint knives, and Taking into account Abraham's advanced age, this requirement of circumcision seems like it puts God's promise in even greater jeopardy. The possibility of infection and problems, it it makes it seem less likely that God would bring about a son for Abraham, not simply through Sarah, but through anybody. In this way, the call to circumcision was a call to faith. And it was a call call of self-renunciation. Abraham was going to learn that it was nothing in his physical capacity that would bring about God's promises. It would only be God who would bring about those promises. Amazingly and significantly, God does give Abraham a son through Sarah. The son's name is Isaac. But this son came only after Abraham was circumcised. Have you ever thought about this? It wasn't until after Abraham jeopardized his body that the son would actually come. It would only come through his self-renunciation, through a cutting off, a sacrificing of himself that God would bring this promise to bear. What God was teaching Abraham is that self-denial, self-renunciation, Was a prerequisite for the realization of God's promises. There was a kind of cutting off that was necessary for Abraham to be fruitful for God and for him to maintain covenant faithfulness with God. More than that, we we realize, Abraham realized, that he did not have to prove himself worthy or powerful to bring about God's promises. Instead, he needed to rest in God's promises. He needed to rest in the faithfulness of God, recognizing that he was unworthy of this divine calling and unable to bring about the covenantal promises. Only when Abraham would physically decrease through circumcision would God increase and show himself faithful to the promises the ultimate result of that circumcision, is that Abraham was prepared for covenantal fruitfulness as he participated in the faithfulness of God. That's a remarkable scene. Um, And scenes like this appear throughout the Bible, particularly in conjunction with circumcision. So I want to draw your attention to a second scene, one that's probably less familiar that makes the same point. To be fruitful for God, we need to renounce ourselves. There's a kind of self-denial that's a prerequisite to faithfulness and fruitfulness and fellowship with God. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Abraham's offspring Isaac and all of his descendants did grow up into a great nation in the land of Egypt. We just read about that in our Old Testament reading this morning. But this nation was put into bondage in slavery in the land of Egypt While they were seeking refuge from Egypt, they were there for over 400 years, God eventually miraculously redeemed Israel from bondage to Egypt. He led them into the wilderness on the way to a new promising land where they could live out their lives under the rule of God. This guy Moses that we're all familiar with with led Israel all the way through the wilderness but because of his own sin he was not permitted to enter into the promised land. Instead God raised up a different man named Joshua who would take people across the Jordan River and into the promised land to defeat their enemies and reside as God's kingdom. So Joshua and the nation he led marched up to the edge of the promised land and all of their enemies were sent running with fear. And then God miraculously dried up the Jordan River so that this whole nation could cross the river and enter into the land. And from all appearances, Israel was about to march on to the glory of battle and conquer all their enemies and establish a kingdom in the land. Do you find resonances with Abraham's story? Right when we would probably write into the story of a great conquering, a great picture of human victory. God writes into the story a picture of human humility. Because when Israel crossed the Jordan River, they didn't immediately go to conquer their enemies. Instead, God gave them a command. He told them, every male needs to circumcise themselves before they enter into the land. They need to weaken themselves through circumcision. They need to identify with Abraham and his weakness that was required before the realization of the divine promises. So shockingly, after they cross this river, God's command comes and it's a command to circumcise themselves. Um, One of my friends wrote about this text in a paper he did for um, Bethlehem College and Seminary. And this is how he describes the story. I think he articulates it pretty well. This story is about preparing oneself to do the work of God. The conquest is not about the male ego expressed in conquest. The conquest is not the extension of phallic pride. Rather, that phallic pride is literally cut off. It must die so that it can be raised to life again. They must be ritually castrated if they are going to be faithful for God. They are not to rush into conquest with all the self-assurance of a crusading army. Rather, they must be reminded in their flesh for whom they fight. Isn't that a different way of looking at the battle that Israel goes into? And isn't that a different way of looking at our Christian life? It's not about the extension of our own power or pride, but actually a killing of our pride and a killing of our attempts to secure anything apart from God. Now, interestingly, immediately after this physical participation in the sign of the covenant, where they proclaim God's faithfulness and commit themselves to be faithful to God, the nation of Israel observed the Passover meal. They fellowshiped with God. They were fed by God. So I want to suggest that in both of these accounts, circumcision, this cutting off of the self, is a prerequisite to becoming fruitful for God and fellowshipping with God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, these ideas continue, but they do so not just in physical circumcision, but also in metaphors of circumcision. So throughout the Old Testament, circumcision is applied metaphorically in a variety of ways that carry forward this notion of self-denial that's a prerequisite to covenant faithfulness and fruitfulness in fellowship with God. So for example, in Leviticus 19, God instructed that Israel prune every new fruit tree so that it could become more fruitful. But God didn't use the terminology of pruning like we might. He said that they needed to circumcise the uncircumcised trees so that they can become faithful and fruitful. Isn't that interesting? At other times, the concept of circumcision is applied to those who fail to listen to God's word. They're described as having uncircumcised ears. So they need to circumcise their ears so that they can hear God's word. The word is circumcision. This metaphor is also applied to people's lips. So Moses said that he had uncircumcised lips, meaning that he couldn't speak effectively and fruitfully to Pharaoh in the nation of Israel. So he needed God to circumcise his lips. And then throughout the Bible, we see a metaphor of heart circumcision that we'll consider in a few moments. But the point so far is that circumcision was a physical act that declared the necessity of self-renunciation, of giving up on the self as a prerequisite to be fruitful for God and to enter into fellowship with God. So how did people come to view circumcision? by the time Jesus and the apostles were around. Let's consider circumcision in the New Testament times. Now, of course, sometimes we think that every Jewish person thought in the same way. But there were actually different sects of Judaism that thought about things differently. So we know this even from your reading of the New Testament, that there were Pharisees and Sadducees. And there were other sectarian groups that aren't talked about in the Bible. But people would have viewed circumcision in different ways. But the primary way that people viewed circumcision involved two realities. First, they saw circumcision as a guarantee of divine favor. And second, they considered circumcision a necessary mark of belonging to God's people. So if you wanted to be sure that God would be on your side, that you would receive his divine approval, that you would have God having your back, every male in your family needed to be circumcised. And if you wanted to identify as God's people, you needed to be circumcised. So if you're reading through the book of Acts, this is why many of the Jewish Christians wanted the non-Jewish Christians to get circumcised as well. The reasoning was, if they're going to be marked out as God's people and have God's divine favor, they need to be circumcised. Well, almost every time you see circumcision referenced in the New Testament, one of the New Testament authors is disagreeing with this logic. They're saying circumcision is no longer necessary to belong to the people of God. We'll consider why in just a minute. But even without looking at the New Testament, we should realize that circumcision does not guarantee divine favor, and it doesn't guarantee that someone will belong to God's people. Because even as circumcision is talked about in the Old Testament, there are tensions introduced to show that circumcision doesn't fully accomplish what it teaches So it does teach something important, but it doesn't fully accomplish it. So, for example, um, Abraham's son that he had with Hagar, Ishmael, Ishmael was circumcised as well, but he was not included in the covenant people of God, and he was not fruitful as a member of God's covenant people. So that shows us that circumcision doesn't, um, you know, just accomplish this on its own. More, more than that, even after it, the men of Israel were circumcised after crossing the Jordan, I just talked about that with Joshua, even after they were circumcised, they entered into the land, and although they were faithful to God initially, they were immediately unfaithful to God. So pretty shortly after that, they go to the city of Iai, is sometimes how we pronounce it, and they didn't maintain covenant faithfulness with God, and they were defeated. So the point is that circumcision can never guarantee divine favor, and it can never guarantee faithfulness or belonging to God. But a lot of people in Paul's in Jesus's day sort of thought that it did. A lot of the New Testament argumentation goes directly against that. I'm emphasizing this point because when you read texts like Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Romans, Often, there's a debate going on between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians where the Jewish Christians are trying to get the non-Jewish Christians to get circumcised. And and Paul and the other New Testament authors are saying that's not a requirement. It it doesn't need to happen. We don't have those debates so much today, do we? I was looking at the National Institutes of Health, and like 80% of males in America are circumcised at birth for medical and hygienic reasons, not religious reasons. So that's lost on us, but we at least need to know about it so we understand what's going on in the New Testament. But I want to try to help this become a little more relevant for us by drawing our attention to the way that circumcision, the church, and the Christ event relate together. Now, we have to go a little bit beyond Romans. We're going to Colossians to talk about this a little bit. But the background to this is that what I've already been saying, Jewish, many Jewish Christians thought you needed to maintain the physical practice of circumcision. In fact, there was this really famous Jewish philosopher named Philo who pretty much said, look, circumcision mostly depicts a reality, and the reality can be there without circumcision physically, but we should keep doing circumcision physically. That was the common thought of the day. But if that was the common thought of the day, and if you're realizing the New Testament authors are saying circumcision shouldn't be maintained as a religious practice, you might be asking, why not? Why can we just disregard the commands for circumcision? Particularly because if you read in Genesis 17, God told Abraham that circumcision would be a sign forever or eternally. So why isn't it anymore? Why is it that in your illustrious Sunday school career, you regularly sang, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. And, and we don't adopt the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Why is that? Well, the reasons are actually really complex and it would take a whole like couple Bible class lessons to get into all of it. So I'm going to try to boil it down in two simple ways. Um, The main reason is that physical circumcision as a sign was pointing forward to a more radical cutting off that would bring about fruitfulness and fellowship. Um, So theologians, when they detect signs in the Old Testament that point forward to something that will happen in the new, they call these signs types. And when that sign is filled up, they call that an anti-type. If you're not theologically minded, that might get lost on you, so I want to give you a different way of looking at it. Often in the Old Testament, God would instruct people to do certain things or to live in certain ways that would be a shadowy picture of something bigger and greater that would come later on. So it was kind of like a connect the dots picture. Have you all done of those as a kid in a coloring book where you draw lines from dot to dot and you kind of see the picture, but it's just an outline of the picture. Those are Old Testament commands by and large. But by the New Testament, you get a fully painted Van Gogh edition of that same thing. And when you get the Van Gogh, you don't want the five-year-old's dot-to-dot drawing anymore. You get rid of it, and you marvel at the Van Gogh painting. That's what's going on with circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a dot-to-dot picture of a cutting off that was necessary for fruitfulness and fellowship. But then, in the New Testament, a greater cutting off happened. And that's found particularly in Colossians 2, 8 through 15. There, Paul describes Christ's crucifixion as a circumcision, where Christ himself was cut off. And by Christ being cut off and calling us to him, his cutting off, his crucifixion circumcision became our crucifixion circumcision. This is what Paul says. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses." So using the language of Colossians 53.8, Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. On the cross, Jesus was cut off in a greater and more significant way than any physical circumcision could ever do. His death was the culmination of the picture of death sketched out in that dot-to-dot picture of circumcision. In Christ's self-denial, he was cut off so that he might become fruitful in his resurrection, and so that that fruit might be shown in your life as you're brought into fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, Paul argues that the Colossians have received circumcision not done with hands by entering into Christ's circumcision like death. And as a result, you have life and fellowship with God. So the short answer to the question, why don't we practice circumcision, is this. It's because the death of Christ on the cross was a true and greater cutting off, a true and greater circumcision. That's already taken place and it makes the dotted line picture of circumcision no longer valuable. Instead, we connect to Christ. Now in a moment, we'll think about this, but Paul's language in Colossians talks about our baptism as the means by which we connect to this circumcision. Hang on to that thought for a little bit. But let's shift forward now that we've at least justified why we don't practice circumcision religiously, to the notion of heart circumcision. This brings us back to our text in Romans, but I warned you, this is a little bit of a, more of a lecture lesson than a sermon. We have to actually go all the way back to Deuteronomy because heart circumcision appears twice in Deuteronomy, and that's what Paul is referring to. So the first time heart circumcision appears in Deuteronomy, well, okay, I skip forward. This is why I don't like using slides, because I can't just skip over something that I think is no longer as relevant as I did five hours ago. Um, When we talk about circumcision of the heart, we have to redefine the heart. It's not like the heart on a Valentine's Day that's all about emotions. When Americans talk about hearts, and when you send a heart emoji to some buddy. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about the heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's just shorthand for the whole person. Your emotions, your mind, your will, and your action. When Americans talk about the heart and they say things like follow your heart, they mean turn off your brain and turn off your emotions and just do what you feel like. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the emotional aspect of you. It's talking about the whole of you. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your actions. So when you're called to love God with all your heart, you're called to not just love God with your emotions, but with every fiber of your being. And when we're called to circumcise our hearts, it's talking about that, every fiber of our being, the core of who we are. Okay, So it was still kind of important to define that, but let's move forward. Deuteronomy 10, um, Moses tells Israel that they need to circumcise their hearts. He tells them that God has set his heart on you, so you need to circumcise your heart. What is he getting at? He's saying that God has set his heart on you. God has opened his heart in love towards you, and now you need to open your heart in love towards God. That's what circumcision of the heart is. It's removing anything that would keep you from receiving God's love and loving him back. Okay, so Deuteronomy 10, the agent who needs to circumcise the heart is you. You need to do this. This is an action that you must do. But then in Deuteronomy 30, in Moses' final sermon to Israel, he tells them that God will circumcise your heart. Do you see the shift in who's doing the circumcision? Deuteronomy 10, you circumcise your heart. Deuteronomy 30, God will circumcise your heart. Now, there are some people who say that Moses developed in his theology, and Moses once thought, We needed to circumcise our own hearts, but now, later in his life, he believed only God could do that. I want to suggest that while that's attractive because it relieves us from responsibility, it's not true. It's not what's going on there. Instead, maybe we can use a musical analogy of Moses setting up two speakers. If you have a speaker system in your house, you'll have different things coming out of separate speakers that combine to bring out the full harmony and melody of the song. Um, I think Moses is giving us two speakers. He's saying that heart circumcision is a participatory reality where we have a responsibility, but God is going to enable us to get the job done. Okay? So God and humankind are involved in this cutting away of everything from the core of who we are that would keep us from receiving God's love and keep us from loving God. I think that imagery is helpful and probably in your own relationships, you've experienced this. Have you ever really tried to show love to somebody who just didn't like you? It wasn't that there was a problem with the, your love for them, but they didn't want to receive that love. Maybe they were offended by you in something in the past, or they're just a grouchy person, and they needed to get rid of something in their life that would keep them from entering into that love. Um, if you're someone who has grown children, maybe you felt that way with your children. Like, hey, I'm loving you and you're putting up all these barriers to my love and you need to circumcise those barriers. You need to cut them off so we can enter into this love relationship. What Moses is saying is that God is working to help us do that, but we also need to cut off everything from our hearts that would keep us from entering into the love of God. By the time we get to Romans chapter 2, the text that we considered in detail last week, Paul is arguing the same thing. He's saying that physical circumcision won't bring God's praise to you, or God's favor to you, or God's love to you. God's love is already there. It's already being projected, and a physical cut with a knife won't do anything to draw you into that love. Instead, something has to happen to your heart so that you can receive that love and so that you can share it with other people, so that you can um, communicate that love to the full body of Christ with no prerequisite, with nothing that they bring to the table. Um, This is a Holy Spirit-enabled process, but it's not a magical process detached from our involvement in it. Okay, five, Fifth point and final, responding to the biblical metaphor of circumcision or circumcision in the Christian life. So if you have only sort of followed along this whole time, I want to give you five points that are really helpful in how we should respond whenever we see circumcision in the Bible, okay? So if you've zoned out, this is your call to come back and tie into what's going on. All right, um, number one. Circumcision teaches us about love. The circumcision metaphor, this heart circumcision metaphor, teaches us that we can never earn God's love, but that we do have to respond appropriately to receive it. This is what I was just talking about at great length. God's love is already there. Why did Israel need to circumcise their hearts? Because God had already set his heart on them. Why do you and I need to circumcise our hearts? Because God's love has already been put on us in an even greater way in Jesus Christ. So you can't earn God's love and you cannot manipulate God's love out of him and you can't change something about yourself to earn special favor with God. Instead, you need to simply respond and open your heart to the love of God that is already there. This is a radical notion And and if we can get this notion in our relationship with God, I think it will radically transform the way that we relate to other people. Instead of viewing the whole world as if we have to perform something in a way to get God to finally love us. If we can set that aside, then it changes the way we live with other people. It changes the way you parent to your kids. It changes the way you relate to your coworkers. It changes everything because no longer are you driven by this performance based story in which you have to manipulate and you have to prove yourself to get love, but instead God's love is actually fully there for you already. If free you from that bondage of performance. Now, the reality is that deep in our hearts, we all kind of revert back to this bondage of performance. And in fact, on on its face, sometimes it looks even easier, and we feel like it adds a level of dignity to us because we did something to earn it. We're not unlovable. We're lovable, and we got God to love us. Um, There was this guy that I worked with one summer who was the graphic designer for this camp, And um, he made a design that was really good. And we told him, hey, this is great. You did a really good job here. And he said, I'm glad that we have a performance-based relationship because then I always know where I stand with you. And if I'm not doing a good job at my work, I can just avoid you. I think sometimes we relate to God that way, don't we? We think that we can make ourselves lovable to God. And when we realize that we're not quite lovable to God, we just avoid him. We run away from him. We tried to find love in other places. Well, this heart circumcision metaphor teaches us that God's love is always radiating out there, and we just have to turn and walk into it and embrace it. Second, the heart circumcision metaphor teaches us to value baptism. Okay? The heart circumcision metaphor teaches us to value baptism. We can't fully consider Colossians 2, but Josh preached this, I think, in 2018, and you can talk to him about this text. But the point is that Paul connects our entry into the circumcision of Christ and his death and resurrection with baptism. You should reflect on your baptism in a different way. It wasn't you just getting wet, but it was you entering into the greater circumcision of Christ in which he was cut off for our transgressions. More than that, it was entering into the new life. The fruitfulness and fellowship that comes after self-renunciation. Third, heart circumcision metaphor helps us to hear more appropriately the numerous commands in the New Testament to put off the old man or to put the flesh to death. Okay, so has that been confusing to you sometimes when you read the New Testament? When when Paul says things like, put off the deeds of the flesh, Which are, and then he lists a ton of things, ranging from idolatry to sexual immorality to drunkenness to, you know, disobedience. Sometimes we read those things and think, this is such an arbitrary list of bad things that God doesn't want me to do, but I feel like those bad things are going to make my life better. What the New Testament authors are trying to tell you is that all of those things prohibit you from entering deeply into God's love and finding the fruit of God's love in the Holy Spirit springing out in your life. We think that all of those things are what will be necessary for a good life now, but the New Testament authors tell us that they need to be cut off so that we can enter into the good life that God has prescribed for us by his Spirit. So in that way, we need to become like Abraham. We need to have the kind of faith that Abraham had when he thought going through with this procedure is what will keep me from realizing the promises of God. But he did it anyway. We need to cut out of our lives And I think that's the metaphor we're supposed to use. We need to cut out of our lives all of these works of the flesh that prohibit our hearts from receiving and entering into God's love and sharing it with other people. I would suggest to you um, that anytime you look at lists of deeds of the flesh in the New Testament, if you live in that way, if you live with anger and malice and disobedience and hatred and sexual immorality, those things won't just keep you from entering into God's love, they'll keep you from loving other people. It's not arbitrary. Those things destroy relationships, and, and the heart circumcision metaphor is a good picture of cutting that out so our hearts can be opened up to fully participate in the love of God and love with the community of God. Fourth, The heart circumcision metaphor teaches us that opening up our hearts to God's heart is a way of life and not a one-time event. Okay, I used to think of this heart circumcision picture as like what happened at conversion or regeneration or something like that. And I think that is the case, but there's a reason why the biblical authors repeatedly tell us to put off the flesh and regularly tell God's people to circumcise their hearts. Because this is where the metaphor of heart circumcision diverges from physical circumcision. Physical circumcision was a one-time act. Heart circumcision is a way of life. It's a way of life. Because our hearts have a way of growing callous and cutting themselves off from the love of God and from the love of others. This is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 12 when he urges his readers to present themselves as a living sacrifice holy, cutting off everything that keeps them from the love of God and the love of one another. We must become living sacrifices, a constant self-renunciation, a dying to self and the sins of our hearts. That is true worship. True worship is not bare religious action. It's a fruitful giving of the self to others and to God. It's a denial of the self That's an imitation of the denial of the self that we see in Jesus. A kind of sacrifice that's a daily call to pick up our cross and follow after Christ. Fifth, and finally, the heart circumcision metaphor teaches us that God is deeply relational. Now this will take a moment, but it's the summary of everything that I've said. The whole Bible is moving us toward God and moving God's love toward us. God's love is deeply relational, it's not coercive. It's not coercive. This is why we must circumcise our hearts. This is why we must participate in a self-mortification, is the way that the old Puritans talked about it. a dying to sin. We must participate in it. God doesn't coerce us into it. A love that's a coercive love that forces, forces itself on us is no longer love at all. In our modern world, we could call it like a robotization of something, a programming. You don't want to program your kids to love you. You want them to love you. So you keep loving them until hopefully they do. And God will forever keep loving us with the hopes that we will respond to him as well. The fact that God's love is relational indicates that a responsibility comes with it. Every relationship is incumbent with responsibilities, including our relationship to God. It's a relationship that involves putting our faith in Christ as the one who experienced the great circumcision. It's, the one, it's a, a relationship of faith that trusts that God will always be loving, even when we see our unworthiness of his love at its fullest. It's a relationship that involves the responsibility of daily sacrificing ourselves and putting to death the deeds of the flesh so that we can embrace God's love and we can embrace others in that same love. So let's pray that God would allow us to do this and that our church, as we reflect on this frankly weird picture of circumcision, that we would become circumcised in our flesh and recipients of the love of God. Father, we thank you for what can be an odd and uncomfortable and at least foreign practice. We thank you for the witness of the scriptures that convinces us of your abiding love, that convinces us that you have set your heart on us. And now all we need to do is to open our hearts to receive that love. Now, as we sing... As we come to the table and picture the greatest manifestation of your love in Jesus, as we partake of the bread and the cup, would you open up our hearts to your love? In Christ we pray. Amen.